Chapter 8 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Borgias, Chapter 8 Caesar remained at Naples partly to give time to the paternal grief to cool down, and partly to get on with other business he had lately been charged with, nothing else than a proposition of marriage between Lucrezia and Don Alfonso of Aragon, Duke of Pacelli and Prince of Salerno, natural son of Alfonso II and brother of Donna Sancha. It was true that Lucrezia was already married to the Lord of Pissarro, but she was the daughter of a father who had received from heaven the right of uniting and disuniting. There was no need to trouble about so trifling a matter. When the two were ready to marry, the divorce would be effected. Alexander was too good a tactician to leave his daughter married to a son-in-law who was becoming useless to him. Towards the end of August it was announced that the ambassador was coming back to Rome, having accomplished his mission to the new king to his great satisfaction, and thither he returned on the 5th of September, that is, nearly three months after the Duke of Gandia's death, and on the next day, the 6th, from the church of Santa Maria Novella, where, according to custom, the cardinals and the Spanish and Venetian ambassadors were awaiting him on horseback at the door, he proceeded to the Vatican, where His Holiness was sitting. There he entered the consistory, was admitted by the Pope, and in accordance with the usual ceremonial received his benediction and kiss. Then, accompanied once more in the same fashion by the ambassadors and cardinals, he was escorted to his own apartments. Thence he proceeded to the Pope's as soon as he was left alone, for at the consistory they had had no speech with one another, and the father and son had a hundred things to talk about. But of these the Duke of Gandia was not one, as might have been expected. His name was not once spoken, and neither on that day nor afterwards was there ever again any mention of the unhappy young man. It was as though he had never existed. It was the fact that Caesar brought good news. King Frederick gave his consent to the proposed union, so the marriage of Sforza and Lucrezia was dissolved on a pretext of nullity. Then Frederick authorized the exhumation of the gem's body, which, it will be remembered, was worth three hundred thousand ducats. After this, all came about as Caesar had desired. He became the man who was all-powerful after the Pope. But when he was second in command, it was soon evident to the Roman people that their city was making a new stride in the direction of ruin. There was nothing but balls, fetes, masquerades. Uh, there were magnificent hunting parties. When Caesar, who had begun to cast off his cardinal's robe, wary perhaps of the color, appeared in a French dress, followed like a king by cardinals, envoys, and bodyguard. The whole pontifical town, given up like a courtesan to orgies and debauchery, had never been more the home of sedition, luxury, and carnage, according to the cardinal of Viterba, not even in the days of Nero and Haliogabalus. Never had she fallen upon days more evil, never had more traitors done her dishonor or spiri stained her streets with blood. The number of thieves was so great, and their audacity such, that no one could with safety pass the gates of the town. Soon it was not even safe within them. No house, no castle availed for defense. Right and justice no longer existed. Money, farce, pleasure ruled supreme. Still the gold was melting as in a furnace at these fetes, and, by heaven's just punishment, Alexander and Caesar were beginning to covet the fortunes of those very men who had risen through their simony to their present elevation. The first attempt at a new method of coining money was tried upon the Cardinal Consenza. The occasion was as follows. A certain dispensation had been granted some time before to a nun who had taken the vows. She was the only surviving heir to the throne of Portugal and by means of the dispensation she had been wedded to the natural son of the last king. This marriage was more prejudicial than can be easily imagined to the interests of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, so they sent ambassadors to Alexander to lodge a complaint against a proceeding of this nature. 
especially as it happened at the very moment when an alliance was to be formed between the House of Aragon and the Holy See. Alexander understood the complaint, and resolved that all should be set right, so he denied all knowledge of the papal brief, though he had, as a fact, received sixty thousand ducats for signing it, and accused the Archbishop of Cosenza, secretary for apostolic briefs, of having granted a false dispensation. By reason of this accusation, the Archbishop was taken to the castle of Sant'Angelo, and a suit was begun. But, as it was no easy task to prove an accusation of this nature, especially if the Archbishop should persist in maintaining that the dispensation was really granted by the Pope, it was resolved to employ a trick with him which could not fail to succeed. One evening, the Archbishop of Consenza saw Cardinal Valentino come into his prison, with that frank air of affability which he knew well how to assume when it could serve his purpose. He explained to the prisoner the embarrassing situation in which the Pope was placed, from which the Archbishop alone, whom His Holiness looked upon as his best friend, could save him. The Archbishop replied that he was entirely at the service of His Holiness. Caesar, on his entrance, found the captive seated, leaning his elbows on a table, and he took a seat opposite him and explained the Pope's position. It was an embarrassing one. At the very time of contracting so important an alliance with the House of Aragon as that of Lucrezia and Alfonso, His Holiness could not avow to Ferdinand and Isabella that, for the sake of a few miserable ducats, he had signed a dispensation which would unite in the husband and wife together all the legitimate claims to a throne to which Ferdinand and Isabella had no right at all but that of conquest. This avowal would necessarily put an end to all negotiations, and the pontifical house would fall by the overthrow of that very pedestal which was to have heightened its grandeur. Accordingly, the archbishop would understand what the pope expected of his devotion and friendship. It was a simple and straightforward avowal that he had supposed he might take it upon himself to accord the dispensation. Then, as the sentence to be passed on such an error would be the business of Alexander, the accused could easily imagine beforehand how truly paternal such a sentence would be. Besides, the reward was in the same hands, and if the sentence was that of a father, the recompense would be that of a king. In fact, this recompense would be no less than the honor of assisting as envoy, with the title of cardinal, at the marriage of Lucrezia and Alfonso, a favor which would be very appropriate since it would be thanks to his devotion that the marriage could take place. The Archbishop of Consenza knew the men he was dealing with. He knew that to save their own ends they would hesitate at nothing. He knew they had a poison like sugar to the taste and to the smell impossible to discover in food, a poison that would kill slowly or quickly as the poisoner willed and would leave no trace behind. He knew the secret of the poisoned key that lay always on the Pope's mantelpiece, so that when His Holiness wished to destroy some one of his intimates, he bade him open a, a certain cupboard on the handle of the key there was a little spike, and as the lock of the cupboard turned stiffly the hand would naturally press, the lock would yield, and nothing would have come of it but a trifling scratch. The scratch was mortal. He knew, too, that Caesar wore a ring made like two lion's heads, and that he would turn the stone on the inside when he was shaking hands with a friend. Then the lion's teeth became the teeth of a viper, and the friend died cursing Borgia. So he yielded partly through fear, partly blinded by the thought of the reward, and Caesar returned to the Vatican armed with a precious paper, in which the Archbishop of Consenza admitted that he was the only person responsible for the dispensation granted to the royal nun. Two days later, by means of the proofs kindly furnished by the archbishop, the pope, in the presence of the governor of Rome, the auditor of the apostolic chamber, the advocate, and the fiscal attorney, pronounced the sentence, condemning the archbishop to the loss of all his benefices and ecclesiastical offices, degradation from his orders, and confiscation of his goods. His person was to be handed over to the civil arm. Two days later, the civil magistrate entered the prison to fulfill his office as received from the Pope, and appeared before the archbishop accompanied by a clerk, two servants, and four guards. The clerk unrolled the paper he carried and read out the sentence. 
the two servants untied a packet, and, stripping the prisoner of his ecclesiastical garments, they reclothed him in a dress of coarse white cloth, which only reached down to his knees, breeches of the same, and a pair of clumsy shoes. Lastly, the guards took him and led him into one of the deepest dungeons of the castle of St. Angelo, where for furniture he found nothing but a wooden crucifix, a table, a chair, and a bed, for occupation, a Bible, and a breviary with a lamp to read by, for nourishment, two pounds of bread, and a little cask of water, which were to be renewed every three days, together with a bottle of oil for burning in his lamp. At the end of a year the poor archbishop died of despair, not before he had gnawed his own arms in his agony. The very same day that he was taken into the dungeon, Caesar Borgia, who had managed the affair so ably, was presented by the Pope with all the belongings of the condemned prisoner. But the hunting parties, balls, and masquerades were not the only pleasures enjoyed by the Pope and his family. From time to time, strange spectacles were exhibited. We will only describe two. One of them a case of punishment, the other no more nor less than a matter of the stud farm. But as both of these give details, with which we would not have our readers credit our imagination, we will first say that they are literally translated from Burchard's Latin journal. About the same time, that is, about the beginning of 1499, a certain courtesan named La Corsetta was in prison, and had a lover who came to visit her in woman's clothes, a Spanish moor, called from his disguise the Spanish Lady from Barbary. As a punishment, both of them were led through the town, the woman without petticoat or skirt, but wearing only the moor's dress unbuttoned in the front, the man wore his woman's garb, his hands were tied behind his back, and the skirt fastened up to his middle, with a view to complete exposure before the eyes of all. When, in this attire, they had made the circuit of the town, the corsetta was sent back to the prison with the moor, but on the 7th of April following, the moor was again taken out and escorted in the company of two thieves towards the Campo dei Fiori. The three condemned men were preceded by a constable who rode backwards on an ass, and held in his hand a long pole, on the end of which were hung, still bleeding, the amputated limbs of a poor Jew who had suffered torture and death for some trifling crime. When the procession reached the palace of execution, the thieves were hanged, and the unfortunate Moor was tied to a stake piled round with wood, where he was to have been burnt to death. Had not rain fallen in such torrents that the fire would not burn, in spite of all the efforts of the executioner? This unlooked-for accident, taken as a miracle by the people, robbed Lucrezia of the most exciting part of the execution, but her father was holding in reserve another kind of spectacle to console her with later. We inform the reader once more that a few lines we are about to set before him are a translation from the journal of the worthy German Burchard, who saw nothing in the bloodiest or most wanton performances but facts for his journal, which he duly registered with the impassibility of a scribe, appending no remark or moral reflection. On the 11th of November, a certain peasant was entering Rome with two stallions laden with wood, when the servants of his holiness, just as he passed the piazza of St. Peter's, cut their girths so that their loads fell on the ground with the pack-saddles, and led off the horses to a court between the palace and the gate. Then the stable-doors were open, and four stallions, quite free and unbridled, rushed out, and in an instant all six animals began kicking, biting, and fighting each other, until several were killed. Rodrigo and Madame Lucrezia, who sat at the window just over the palace gate, took the greatest delight in the struggle, and called their courtiers to witness the gallant battle that was being fought below them. Now, Caesar's trick in the matter of the Archbishop of Consenza had had the desired result, and Isabella and Ferdinand could no longer impute to Alexander the signature of the brief they had complained of, so nothing was now in the way of the marriage of Lucrezia and Alfonso. This certainty gave the Pope great joy, for he attached all the more importance to this marriage because he was already cogitating a second between Caesar and Donna Carlotta, Frederic's daughter. 
Caesar had shown in all his actions since his brother's death his want of vocation for the ecclesial life, so no one was astonished when, a consistory having been summoned one morning by Alexander, Caesar entered and addressing the Pope, began by saying that from his earliest years he had been drawn towards secular pursuits both by natural inclination and ability, and it had only been in obedience to the absolute commands of his holiness that he entered the church, accepted the cardinal's scarlet, other dignities, and finally the sacred order of the diaconate. But, feeling that in his situation it was improper to follow his passions, and at his age impossible to resist them, he humbly entreated his holiness graciously to yield to the desire he had failed to overcome, and to permit him to lay aside the dress and dignities of the church, and enter once more into the world, there too contract a lawful marriage. Also he entreated the Lord Cardinals to intercede for him with his holiness, to whom he would freely resign all his churches, abbeys, and benefices, as well as every other ecclesiastical dignity and preferment that had been accorded him. The Cardinals, deferring to Caesar's wishes, gave a unanimous vote, and the Pope, as we may suppose, like a good father, not wishing to force his son's inclinations, accepted his resignation and yielded to the petition. Thus Caesar put off the scarlet robe which was suited him, says his historian Tommaso Tomasi, in one particular only, that it was the color of blood. In truth, the resignation was a pressing necessity, and there was no time to lose. Charles VIII, one day after he had come home late and tired from the hunting field, had bathed his head in cold water and, going straight to table, had been struck down by an apoplectic seizure directly after his supper, and was dead, leaving the throne to good Louis XII, a man of two conspicuous weaknesses, one as deplorable as the other. The first was the wish to make conquests, the second was the desire to have children. Alexander, who was on the watch for all political changes, had seen in a moment what he could get from Louis XII's succession to the throne, and was prepared to profit by the fact that the new king of France needed his help for the accomplishment of his twofold desire. Louis needed first his temporal aid in the expedition against the Duchy of Milan, on which, as we explained before, he had inherited claims from Valentina Visconti, his grandmother, and, secondly, his spiritual aid to dissolve his marriage with Jean, the daughter of Louis XI, a childless and hideously deformed woman, whom he had only married by reason of the great fear he entertained for her father. Now Alexander was willing to do all this for Louis XII, and to give, in addition, a cardinal's hat to his friend George d'Amboise, provided only that the King of France would use his influence in persuading the young Donna Carlotta, who was at his court, to marry his son Caesar. So, as this business was already far advanced on the day when Caesar doffed his scarlet and donned a secular garb, thus fulfilling the ambition so long cherished, when the lord of Villeneuve, sent by Louis and commissioned to bring Caesar to France, presented himself before the ex-cardinal on his arrival at Rome. The latter, with his usual extravagance of luxury and the kindness he knew well how to bestow on those he needed, entertained his guest for a month, and did all the honors of Rome. After that, they departed, preceded by one of the Pope's courtiers, who gave orders that every town they passed through was to receive them with marks of honor and respect. The same order had been sent throughout the whole of France, where the illustrious visitors received so numerous a guard, and were welcomed by a populace so eager to behold them, that after they passed through Paris, Caesar's gentlemen-in-waiting wrote to Rome that they had not seen any trees in France, or houses, or walls, but only men, women, and sunshine. The king, on the pretext of going out hunting, went to meet his guests two leagues outside the town, as he knew Caesar was very fond of the name of Valentine, which he had used as cardinal, and still continued to employ with the title of count, although he had resigned the archbishopric which gave him the name, he there and then bestowed on him the investiture of Valence, in Dauphine, with a title of duke and a pension of twenty thousand francs. 
Then, when he had made this magnificent gift and talked with him for nearly a couple of hours, he took his leave, to enable him to prepare the splendid entry he was proposing to make. It was Wednesday, the 18th of December, 1498, when Caesar Borgia entered the town of Chinon, with pomp worthy of the son of a pope who was about to marry the daughter of a king. The procession began with four-and-twenty mules, caparisoned in red, adorned with escutcheons bearing the duke's arms, laden with carved trunks and chests inlaid with ivory and silver. After them came four-and-twenty more, also caparisoned, this time in the livery of the king of France, yellow and red. Next, after these came ten other mules, covered in yellow satin with red crossbars, and lastly another ten, covered with striped cloth of gold, the stripes alternately raised and flat gold. Behind the seventy mules which led the procession, there pranced sixteen handsome battle-horses, led by equerries, who marched alongside. These were followed by eighteen hunters, ridden by eighteen pages, who were about fourteen or fifteen years of age. Sixteen of them were dressed in crimson velvet, and two in raised gold cloth. So elegantly dressed were these two children, who were also the best-looking of the little band, that the sight of them gave rise to strange suspicions as to the reason for this preference. If one may believe what Brantome says. Finally, behind these eighteen horses came six beautiful mules, all harnessed with red velvet and led by six valets, also in velvet to match. The third group consisted of, first, two mules quite covered with the cloth of gold, each carrying two chests in which it was said that the duke's treasures was stored, the precious stones he was bringing to his fiancée, and the relics and papal bulls that his father had charged him to convey for him to Louis Twelfth. These were followed by twenty gentlemen dressed in cloth of gold and silver, among whom rode Paul Giordano Orsini, and several barons and knights among the chiefs of the state ecclesiastic. Next came two drums, one rebeck, and four soldiers blowing trumpets and silver clarions. Then, in the midst of a party of four-and-twenty lackeys, dressed half in crimson velvet and half in yellow silk, rode Monsieur Georges d'Ambois and Monseigneur the Duke of Valentinois. Caesar was mounted on a handsome, tall courser, very richly harnessed, in a robe half red satin and half cloth of gold, embroidered all over with pearls and precious stones. In his cap were two rows of rubies the size of beans, which reflected so brilliant a light that one might have fancied they were the famous carbuncles of the Arabian Nights. He also wore on his neck a collar worth at least two hundred thousand livres. Indeed, there was no part of him, even down to his boots, that was not laced with gold and edged with pearls. His horse was covered with a cuirass in a pattern of golden foliage of wonderful workmanship, among which there appeared to grow like flowers nosegays of pearls and clusters of rubies. Lastly, bringing up the rear of the magnificent cortege, behind the duke came twenty-four mules with red caparisons bearing his arms, carrying his silver plate, tents, and baggage. What gave to all the cavalcade an air of most wonderful luxury and extravagance was that the horses and mules were shod with golden shoes and these were so badly nailed on that more than three-quarters of their number were lost on the road. For this extravagance Caesar was greatly blamed, for it was thought an audacious thing to put on his horse's feet a medal of which king's crowns are made. But all this pomp had no effect on the lady for whose sake it had been displayed, for when Donna Carlotta was told that Caesar Borgia had come to France in the hope of becoming her husband, she replied simply that she would never take a priest for her husband, and moreover the son of a priest a man who was not only an assassin but a fratricide, not only a man of infamous birth, but still more infamous in his morals and his actions. But, in default of the haughty Lady of Aragon, Caesar soon found another princess of noble blood who consented to be his wife. This was Mademoiselle d'Albray, daughter of the King of Navarre. The marriage, arranged on condition that the Pope should pay 200,000 ducats dowry to the bride and should make her brother cardinal, 
was celebrated on the 10th of May, and on the Whit Sunday following the Duke of Valentois, received the Order of St. Michael, an order founded by Louis XI, and esteemed at this period as the highest in the gift of the kings of France. The news of this marriage, which made an alliance with Louis XII certain, was received with great joy by the Pope, who at once gave orders for bonfires and illuminations all over the town. Louis XII was not only grateful to the Pope for dissolving his marriage with Jean of France and authorizing his union with Anne of Brittany, but he considered it indispensable to his designs in Italy to have the Pope as his ally. So he promised the Duke of Valentinois to put three hundred lances at his disposal as soon as he had made an entry into Milan to be used to further his own private interests, and against whomsoever he pleased except only the allies of France. The conquest of Milan should be undertaken so soon as Louis felt assured of the support of the Venetians, or at least of their neutrality, and he had sent them ambassadors authorized to promise in his name the restoration of Cremona and Ghiaradada when he had completed the conquest of Lombardy. End of chapter 8. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.